This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast that features full-length lectures and conversations that happen at UC Berkeley. Find more talks at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Good afternoon. It's a wonderful day for Berkeley Law and for this campus. It's my great delight to welcome you to this special event with Justice Elena Kagan. My name is Erwin Chemerinsky, and I'm incredibly fortunate to be the Dean of Berkeley Law. I want to begin by introducing you to our terrific Chancellor, Carol Christ. I know for that many in the law school, you've seen her name on constant email, but this may be the first time you've gotten the chance to meet her in person. Chancellor Christ came to Berkeley in 1970 after receiving her PhD at Yale University. She joined the faculty here as a professor in the English department. She became a department chair, the dean of humanities, the provost and executive vice chancellor, and then she left for 11 years to be the president of Smith College. She returned to Berkeley, she became the interim provost, and in 2017, she became the 11th chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley. I've been a law professor for a long time now. I have never seen a chancellor or a president at campus as universally respected and beloved as Carol Christ. And so it's my great pleasure to turn the microphone over to her now. It's such a thrill to me to welcome you here and to be part of this really exciting occasion today. Today we have the great honor and pleasure of welcoming to the campus U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Elena Kagan for a conversation with Berkeley Law Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. This is a special time to welcome a sitting Supreme Court Justice, reminding us of the vital way of the importance of the rule of law, not least in these very polarized times. Her visit is a wonderful opportunity for the community, our students, to hear from a tremendously accomplished lawyer, an influential legal scholar, a public servant of the highest caliber, and if that sounds too heady, also the only justice to ever cite Spider-Man comics in a majority opinion, which she did. (laughs) In the 2015 patent case, Kimball versus Marvel Entertainment. Justice Kagan was born and raised in New York City and graduated from Princeton University, the University of Oxford, and Harvard Law School. After Harvard, she clerked for a federal court of appeals judge and then for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. She began her career as a professor at the University of Chicago Law School leaving to serve as Associate White House Counsel and later as Policy Advisor under President Bill Clinton. She then became a professor at Harvard Law School and in 2003 was named its dean, its first woman dean. In 2009, she became Solicitor General of the United States, the officer responsible for representing the federal government before the Supreme Court, and in 2010, President Barack Obama nominated her to the Supreme Court itself to fill the vacancy arising from the retirement of Justice John Paul Stevens. Justice Kagan is joined on stage this afternoon by Erwin Chemerinsky, Berkeley Law Dean, and Jesse H. Choper, Distinguished Professor of Law, a graduate of Northwestern University and Harvard Law School, Um, Dean Chemerinsky took up the Berkeley deanship in 2017 after serving as the founding dean at the UC Irvine School of Law for nearly a decade. He previously taught at Duke Law School, the USC School of Law, the UCLA School of Law, and DePaul University College of Law. National Jurist Magazine has several times named Dean Chemerinsky the most influential person in legal education in the United States. Without further ado, please welcome Justice Kagan and Dean Chemerinsky. 
It is so terrific to have you here today. Thank you. Today, Justice Kagan began by having breakfast with our students, taught a class, had lunch with the faculty, and is now here with you. So if I fall asleep in the middle, <laughs> you know why. He's been overworking me. I want to go back through some of the things that Chancellor Chris said in your biography and ask some of the things about you growing up and coming into the career path that you've chosen. Um, as a child, at what point did you think you might want to be a lawyer? Uh, I, I don't think I did as a child. Uh, my, my father was a lawyer, so it's not as though I didn't, uh, you know, it's not as though law was something foreign or alien, quite the opposite. But um, I, I, I hate to say this, but it never struck me that what he did was all that exciting. Um, <laughs> You know, now I look back on it, and he actually took enormous pleasure in his legal career, and I can completely understand why. Um, but he wasn't the kind of, he didn't do drama. You know, he, was, he, he thought of going to court as a kind of failure. Um, he was, um, you know, he was devoted to helping people solve their problems, whatever they were. But it wasn't like you see law on TV. I mean, Justice Sotomayor has talked about how her view of law came from Perry Mason. And, um, too, by the way. Yeah. Well, I think if you grow up with a lawyer, you know Perry Mason is not really an accurate portrayal of law. And, um, and I guess I, I, I just, uh, you know, it, it never struck me as that was the career path. But I didn't quite know what the career path was. And... Um, for a while in college, I was a history major in college, and for a while I had decided I would go on and get a PhD and become a history professor, so I guess that was what I wanted to do then. And then um, my senior thesis convinced me that that was not the answer. <laughs> and uh, so I went to law school, honestly, for all the reasons that people tell people not to go to law school. I mean, I was once, as dean, you have, I'm sure you've done this, you talk to these groups of college students. And I was once talking to one of these groups, and I was saying all the standard things about how you should really know why you want to go to law school, and you should think about going to law school, and shouldn't view it as uh, uh, you're going there because you think it will keep your options open, and you can't think of what else you would do. And I thought, that's exactly why I went to law school. <laughs> because I had eliminated everything else. You know, I didn't like blood, doctor, out, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I thought it would keep my options open. So I went to law school for the worst possible reasons. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands from our students of how many know who Perry Mason is. <laughs> OK, dated. Is that what you're saying? We're both dated. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I, I am curious, though, when you were in college, I know you were an editor of the newspaper. I have said many times behind your back that I think you are the best writer of any of the justices on the Supreme Court. You write with tremendous clarity. You write with great force when it's appropriate. Does that come from your journalist background, or how did you develop that writing skill? Well, don't say that in the hearing of any other justice, okay? okay. <laughs> but, but thank you. It means an enormous amount to me. I mean, I work very hard at it, um, so I, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, did, I did do journalism in college. I have to say, I think that there were uh, two people who taught me how to write, and the first one was my mother. And my mother was an elementary school teacher, and she was a very gifted writer herself, and she really cared about writing, and she cared about teaching, and, um, and she it was not, uh, yeah, she held me to high standards, shall we say, and uh, uh, insisted that I write well. And I didn't always appreciate it at the time, but looking back, it was, um, uh, you know, I, I think maybe she was the most important influence on me. Um, but the second was uh, a college professor of mine who was the advisor for that senior thesis that I talked about. Uh, who It was his first year as a professor at Princeton. It's a very gifted historian named Sean Wilentz. Sure. And uh, it was his first year, and I don't know if he still does something like this, but uh, he was excited and he was full of energy and he loved being there and he loved teaching. And he literally went over every line of my senior thesis twice. 
And by the time I got out of that experience, I had learned so much about how to communicate ideas. Um, so I still work hard at it every day. I mean, it's not something that I think, oh, I just sit down at the computer and it all comes out perfect. I, I, I've known a few people like that in my life. I don't think that there are very many, but I think that they exist. That's not me. Um, I work really hard at it, and um, I continue to learn. I continue to learn from um, uh, some of my colleagues, from some lawyers who appear at the court. I try to read good writing. I think maybe mm -hmm. the best way to be a good writer is to continually surround yourself with good writing and to see what good writers do. Um, I try to avoid bad writing, although that's not altogether my choice because I have to read all these briefs. And <laughs> for the most part, I think, I think that the Supreme Court is gifted with a, uh, it has a wonderful uh, bar that, that uh, argues a lot of our cases. And for the most part, I think they do a superb job and their briefs are really a pleasure to read. But every once in a while, you know, you pick up one and you think, every moment I spend with this brief, I become a worse writer. Um, so, but, um, but, you know, I work at it. I think you have to work at it for almost everybody. It's, it just does, it, 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 the idea that most, for most people at least, that it just sort of flows, uh, I have not found that to be true. It's tough work. You go to law school for the reasons that you said. What was your law school experience like? Did you enjoy it? Did you hate it? Um, a lot of the audience here are law students, including some first-year law students in about their sixth week of classes. What was your experience like? Yeah, can I ask about that? So how many of you are law students? Okay. <laughs> Nobody else was interested, I see. <laughs> and uh, how many of you are first years? Eh, pretty good, pretty good. But I like the fact that the second and third years are still coming, you know? <laughs> Um, uh, I loved law school. So I told you I went there for all the wrong reasons and did not really much expect to like it. From the moment I came in, I loved it. And I think um, it combined for me two things, and it's still honestly the reason I love law. Um, uh, first, uh, you know, a lot of law is like doing puzzles. A lot of law is about um, uh, logic shopping. A lot of law is very analytic. Um, and if you like thinking that way, you know, if you're the kind of person that likes doing crossword puzzles or games of logic or things like that, uh, if you like thinking that way, you know, there's plenty of it in law. And I do like thinking that way, and I view it as a kind of intellectual challenge to try to master bodies of law. And uh, so, so that satisfied uh, one need. But combined with that is that law is an instrument to advance human welfare. And, you know, um, uh, Chancellor Christ talked about the rule of law. Uh, you know, every lawyer is charged now with you go out and you're supposed to protect the rule of law, uh, promote the rule of law. And, uh, and, and that sounds kind of abstract, but there are all kinds of practical ways in which you can use law to make a difference to people, in which you can use law to, uh, to help people. And I found the combination of those two things really satisfying, that on the one hand, it was as intellectually challenging as I could possibly imagine, and I liked the kind of thought processes that it demanded, but on the other hand, that you could see how it made a difference in the world and how you could use it to make a difference in the world. And I think it was necessary for me to think that, uh, that that was possible. I mean, I think part of why I decided in the end not to be uh, a historian was that I wasn't sure that that was true, that it's that uh, 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 with, with a historian, the enterprise is just about something else. It's interesting, we went to the same law school several years apart, and I think our reaction was somewhat different. I enjoyed the first part of what you say, the intellectual puzzle, but I didn't find enough of the second part how to use law for social change. I felt there were just too many courses where they were learning the doctrine without how to use it to make society better. Do you think that's changed over time? I mean, I think uh, partly I was very lucky. I walked into uh, 
the law school we went to, it has certain sections and a group of first-year professors. And I think your first-year professors make such a difference in the way you experience the law school as a whole. And I had this wonderful set of first-year professors who had gotten together for the specific purpose of trying to uh, rethink the legal curriculum. It was called the experimental section. The experiment did not have a long life at the law school. And there were parts of it that were not all that well thought out. But in this, it was extremely good. And it made you feel like you were on the cutting edge of a really important enterprise. And, um, and, and I think having been introduced to law in that way, uh, that it, uh, it, I continue to think of it that way. Or maybe the law school just changed in the interim. Is you think I mean, about- I think now, for example, uh, I, I bet at this law school and at the law school, which is Harvard, that we both went to, it's almost impossible not to be confronted with that aspect of law, right? With how you can use law to make a difference in the world. I hope so. I mean, certainly that's something that, I mean, this school has such a strong public mission and I hope it's imbued in our curriculum. Having been a law professor and a law dean, and of course a law student before that, is there advice you would give to these law students in the audience based on your experience? Are there things you wish you had done in law school that you didn't do? Yeah, Uh, well, I'll give you the advice that I used to give when I was a dean. Um, And one has to do with, what you do in law school, and then one has to do with how you think about your career. I think the, 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 what you do in law school, uh, I mean, I think it, 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 uh, you should experiment. Uh, now, you know, some people, they know exactly what they want to do. They have a passion for a particular thing. There's a mission that's already defined in their heads. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, but I think, uh, you know, one of the virtues of coming to a place like Berkeley Law School is that there's everything here. And, uh, and you have three years. Some people think three years of law school is too much. I think not, in part because of this, because it allows you to try different things and to, uh, to do things that maybe you're not so sure you'll like or you're not so sure you're good at or you're not so sure you'll ever use again. But, uh, but to try them and to see what they're like. And, um, and some of them will, 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 will uh, work. And you'll say, wow, that was fantastic. It was a fantastic intellectual experience. Maybe it opened up something to me that I didn't know was there. So, um, so I, I would say on that, like, take advantage of the riches of a law school like the one that all of you go to, like Berkeley Law School. Um, what do you tell them? Give very much the same advice. Okay. Uh, I, I totally agree. Uh, this is for most of our students, their last time to be students. So it's a wonderful opportunity to take the classes that are of interest to them. I always tell students, for example, don't worry about taking classes because they're on the bar exam. Yeah, That's what the bar review sure. course will prepare you for. Take the classes that really will Even engage in California. Yeah, no, <laughs> to take the classes that engage them intellectually, the ones that they think will be the areas of law they want to practice in. And my experience, about half the students come having an area of practice they're going to be interested in, but a good number of those end up during law school finding something else. Deciding something else, exactly. And law school is sort of the chance to experiment and to play. And I think the career advice I would give is a little bit along the same vein. Now, again, you know, people are different, and some people... They know what they want to do, and that's all they want to do, and, and that's what they want to do for their entire lives. And, uh, and that's great. If you have something like that, you know, go for it. Uh, for me, that wouldn't have worked. I mean, I think you got some sense of this in Professor Christ's remarks. I used to get introduced at places and, and think, everybody thinks I can't keep a job, you know? <laughs> Because I bopped around a lot until I came to this job, basically. I've, uh, which, which it's not an option, you know. Um, but I did, you know, this for two years, and this for three years, and this for four years, and um, and I sort of liked that. Now, again, different strokes for different folks, but but I think one of the things that I think about law students is that they're too risk averse, um, and that they're too. Uh, apt to do just what all of their classmates are doing and not to think a little bit harder about what they want to do and, um, and not to be able to take some risks. And people at a school like this 
they can take some risks. Nothing bad is going to happen to them, or you know, hopefully there's a big safety net underneath you, true. almost always. And uh, uh, and I guess I thought of the law students I taught that they had everything planned out till the day they died, practically. And that it prevented them from taking advantage of opportunities, you know, because it was like, I'm sorry, but that's not on my path. I have this path, and first I do this, and then I do that, and don't you know I need to do this before I do that? Because, and, and, and every, I'm not saying don't plan at all, I'm not saying don't think about things, but, but I think you have to be willing to go off your path. And, uh, and, to, and to do things just because, wow, that's just come along. I never thought of that at all, but it seems so interesting and exciting, and so I'm just going to do it, even though I have no idea where, it, where it's going to go, and even though there's part of me that's a little bit worried that it's going to be a dead end and it's not going to go anywhere. Because, again, you have, uh, you're really smart, and you come from this uh, terrific law school, and you have ways of getting back onto a path if things work out. And, and, and what you'll miss if you don't do things like that is I think most of what makes for a great legal career. Like if I look at people and sort of say, um, you know, who are the lawyers that I know who have had just such fantastic, exciting, interesting, varied legal careers, um, for the most part what they will all tell you, and certainly I'm going to tell you this, is that so much of it was serendipity. So much of it was just luck. And the only, the only part maybe not being luck is that you did have, that you, that you, that you had determined not, you know, to keep your eyes open for new things. And once you keep your eyes open for new things, uh, just things come and, and then you can have one of two choices. You can say, I'm sorry, that's, that's not on the plan. I don't know where that goes. It seems like a risk. Or you can jump in. And I'm, I guess I would say law students, too much plan and too little jump in. After law school, you did two clerkships for Judge Abner Mikva on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and for Justice Thurgood Marshall on the United States Supreme Court. In addition to being two enormously prestigious clerkships, those two judges share in common, they had a great deal of practical experience yeah. before they went on the bench. Abner Mikva was a congressman. In fact, he was my congressman on the wow. south side of Chicago uh -huh. growing up. Yeah. Um, he was also a White House counsel. Um, Thurgood Marshall was the leading civil rights lawyer, arguing Brown versus education and so much else. What did you learn from their experience as judges that you've been able to use yourself as a justice on the Supreme Court? Yeah, so uh, for sure I learned a lot of the kinds of things that clerks learn from judges generally. You know, the clerks learn from judges who haven't had all that experience. And, um, you know, both of them took their work extremely seriously. We talked about the cases in front of us. We talked about the opinions that were coming out of the chambers. I, I um, uh, uh, certainly developed my writing and thinking skills there. But uh, I think, as you suggested, that, that I was very lucky that both these men had so much to teach outside of that, outside of the usual um, uh, judge to clerk uh, education. So Abner Mikva, as you say, I think is the only person who has held such um, senior positions in all three branches of government. And uh, I clerked for him on a court, which was the D.C. Circuit, which, um, which has a docket that is very heavily concerned with how government operates. And Wow, did he know about how government operates. Um, uh, he just had a feel for the way in which government actors worked, how you could expect them to work, what was within the realm of possibility, what you could demand, what you couldn't. And, um, uh, and that proved extremely valuable to me in other parts of my career, when I went to the White House, or being a judge myself and thinking about um, how agencies operate, how Congress and the president operates, what you can demand again, what you can't. Um, so that's what I learned from uh, Judge Mikva. And then Justice Marshall was just such an extraordinary experience. Um, I, 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 I clerked for Justice Marshall very late in his judge career, and of course he had had a career before he became a judge. 
that in some sense, I mean, it's really very one of the only Supreme Court justices that if you just erased the whole Supreme Court part, he would still be in the history books and he would still have this iconic kind of status. Um, uh, the, the part of his legal career that was most meaningful was not sitting around deciding cases on the Supreme Court. It was uh, crisscrossing the South, fighting Jim Crow. And uh, he was an extraordinary lawyer. He did you know, something that's unimaginable now. He did a ton of trial work. He did appellate work. He argued 18 times to the Supreme Court. He won most of those cases. He did criminal side. He did civil side. He did every kind of case imaginable with the, with, uh, the one uh, motivating thing is that it was all about um, uh, uh, advancing racial justice. And, uh, you know, I think he was the greatest lawyer of the 20th century. Uh, I think you know, great lawyers should be, I mean, at least part of the metric is how much have you done to advance justice? And nobody did more than he did. And he was an extraordinary lawyer, lawyer as well. I mean, he could cut to the heart of a case so fast. He, uh, he had all these sort of incompatible skills. On the one hand, he could talk to the U.S. Supreme Court. On the other hand, he could communicate with juries. He, 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 uh, he had the common touch as well as this ability to do law at the, at the sort of grandest stage. And when I clerked for him, he was a little bit, I think, um, uh, maybe taking the measure of his life. I, I think you know, he was not in such great health. I think he knew that he didn't have all that many years left. Uh, for whatever reason, we were uh, we uh, were gifted with um, that he wanted to tell us stories about his life, and he was the world's best storyteller. Um, so we would go into his chambers, and first we would do our normal chambers business, you know, the stuff that everybody did around the building. We would talk about the cases and talk about the opinions that were circulated and all of that. And, and then at some point, he would segue into sort of, you know, stories about his life in the law. And he was, he was, this, he was a, a, a raconteur. He, he told stories with um, with voices and facial expressions, and it was really kind of make you laugh, make you cry. It was it was quite extraordinary. I've never uh, experienced anything like this. And um, and the stories uh, he had great stories to tell. I mean, um, so he told stories about his boyhood, about growing up in segregated Baltimore, about his years at at uh, 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 Howard Law School and and sort of devising with Charles Hamilton Houston the whole strategy to overrule Brown v. Board. He told stories about his work um, uh, in, in, in um, uh, southern communities um, uh, trying to fight Jim Crow in various ways, uh, about, you know, things he had done later in his life as Solicitor General, as um, he told stories about people. We heard all about Lyndon Johnson and Martin Luther King, and sometimes not in the ways you might expect. And uh, it, was, it was just sort of an education in 20th century history that uh, I will be forever grateful I got. After you clerked, you go work for a law firm in Washington at the time, and then you decide to become a law professor starting your teaching career at the University of Chicago Law School. Why academia? Yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't sure. Um, I didn't go through law school thinking, I know I'm going to do academia. I thought it was a possibility. I wanted to try some things first. Uh, the first thing I did was actually, after I, I clerked, I, I um, went on to a presidential campaign. Uh, I, I worked for Michael Dukakis when I arrived in, in, in Boston. The polls had him up by 17 points. And as the days went by, it just went, you know, like, you know. So I tried not to think that that was cause and effect. But, <laughs> it, um, uh, and I think I, I sort of thought that, uh, I, I think I thought maybe I would go into government in the event. That didn't work out. I decided I wasn't, uh, that, uh, that I uh, didn't, the kinds of government jobs I wanted, you know, were ones where you had to uh, uh, be in more sympathy with the administration than I, than I uh, would have felt myself. 
so I, 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 I went to a law firm, which was also one of the things that I had thought about at one time or another. Had a very good time there. Um, I, you know, they treated me well. I had great work. I did some criminal stuff. I did some civil stuff. The law firm that I went to had a very active First Amendment practice. I was able to do some of that. Um, so, uh, so I liked it very much. I, w- I was litigating, and the uh, what I thought was what I thought I I was not going to be happy with for the rest of my life was that in the end, litigating, you kind of kind you have to kind of like the fighting part of it. You have to like the combat, and and I thought a lot of the combat was like socially useless, that there were too many people fighting about things that didn't matter. Um, and uh, so I thought that that was what was not going to wear well for me. Um, you know, some people just sort of loved that, the contest aspect of it. But I thought that uh, there were only a limited number of years in which I was going to be happy with that. So I decided to try academic life. And, um, uh, and I went to the University of Chicago and had a great time there, so wasn't, wasn't regretful. After you had begun there and became a tenured professor there, you then went to work in the White House, in the White House Counsel's Office, and as a domestic policy advisor. What inspired you to do that, and what was that experience like? Yeah, well, I, um, uh, there I was at the University of Chicago, and I had um, just gotten tenure, and uh, and I had really, uh, I was really lo- loving it. I was uh, uh, both the academic writing and also the teaching. I think teaching is is a fantastic thing. And um, uh, so, uh, but I guess what inspired me was um, was a phone call from Abner Mikva. I don't think I would ever have thought to leave, except Abner Mikva had just gone from being a judge to being counsel to the president. And he called me up and he said, you want to come work for me again? And first, I, I um, very much loved working with him. But, but also, I thought, wow, you know, I had just gotten tenure. I was sort of feeling like, what next? How do I, what, what, you know, how do I make things exciting for myself going forward? And I thought, now that would be exciting. And um, I had, uh, you know, always liked thinking about government as a, as, as a, a, you know, and as a younger person and then continuing up. And I thought, well, I mean, I guess this is one of these things. It's like somebody offers you that, you know, grab it. And um, so I went and I had two jobs there. I had uh, my first job was in the council's office and I was a lawyer. And, um, uh, and then my second job, after about 18 months, I was all ready to go back to the University of Chicago like most schools, the University uh, of Chicago had a, uh, a window in which I could leave, and it was two years, and I was coming up to that point. And, um, and I knew that if uh, I stayed longer, I would have to give up tenure there. And, um, and that seemed a little bit uh, nervous-making. But I was having such a good time, and, and, uh, and somebody had offered me a way to uh, to do things of um, I thought even greater significance in the White House, which was actually to leave the council's office, uh, to leave the lawyering part of it, and to go into the domestic policy council to go be a policy maker. I still use all my lawyering skills. I think that's actually why I was offered the job was because I had those skills. Um, but to do something uh, different that sort of put you. Lawyering at the White House, like they need their lawyers, and it's awfully, it's important that they have really good lawyers. But lawyers at the White House are not at the center of things. The center of things is policy making. And, uh, and so I went and did that for about another two and a half years. So, uh, all told I was there for four years, which is quite exhausting. I mean, the White House is a pretty intense place. Um, but unbelievably exciting. I mean, if you're not excited by working, uh, at uh, in the White House, uh, you know. <laughs> you obviously took the advice that you gave to the students. You took a chance. You gave up basically a tenured professor at the University of Chicago to stay and work in the Clinton administration for that time. I want to talk a little bit about how you dealt with disappointments. I understand you were nominated for the D.C. Circuit towards the end of the Clinton presidency, but that was allowed to languish. I assume at that moment it was a real disappointment. Almost a federal court of appeals judge 
and then it just didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's a high-class disappointment. It is, but it's still a disappointment. It's yeah. still in, I mean, you know, from the, from the perspective of other people's lives, well, you're going to go back and be a law professor, but it was almost a D.C. Circuit judgeship. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there were other disappointments in your life of things you had hoped for and didn't get. Right. And you, of course, didn't know the crystal ball that you're going to end up on the Supreme Court. How did you deal with those disappointments? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think if, uh, I had lots of disappointments along the way. And as you say, you picked the sort of highest class disappointment. It was disappointing. Uh, you're nominated for a job like that, and then you don't get it. Um, but there were many others along the way. Uh, I think sometimes people look at a resume like mine and they think, oh, it's just like this is a golden life. Um, what you're seeing was the jobs I got. What you're not seeing was all the jobs I didn't get, right? And, and there were quite a number of those and quite a number of times where I thought, I'm not sure what to do next. I don't know exactly how to turn this corner. Um, uh, and I guess what I've learned is uh, when, I mean, I just really believe this, even though it sounds like magical thinking, um, is that when a door closes, a window opens. And that sometimes the things that you think you wanted, it turns out that you're better off not getting them. So, so that was true in spades of the, um, of the, uh, the judicial nomination. I was nominated for the DC Circuit when I was, you know, pretty young as DC Circuit judges go. I was nominated when I was 39. And, um, if, I think if I had gotten that, I would have become a judge too early, basically, you know, the, the, then I would have done the same job from the time I was 39 till the end of my career. And uh, I, I didn't get it. I didn't exactly know what I was going to do. I kind of had to get tenure all over again. Uh, this time I did it at, 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 at Harvard. Um, but what happened was that, you know, um, so I, I, I went to Harvard. I, I did go through sort of a process of getting tenure again. And then two years later, through a set of fluky circumstances, I became dean. And if I look at, um, if I look at all the things that happened between the time I was 39 and the time I was 50 and got nominated to the Supreme Court, I will tell you that I think I had a better time. I think I developed more skills. I learned more things. Um, staying in academia and in academic administration that I would have had uh, going on to the D.C. Circuit. And indeed, it, you know, it's likelihood is I wouldn't have gotten to the Supreme Court if I had gone that route. So I think you just never know how these things play out. And I think this is true for a lot of people when you talk to them about their careers, is that what you think of as a low point ends up being kind of a pivot to something that turns into a very high point. I could definitely say the same thing. You're at Harvard, you become the dean of Harvard Law School, you do that for six years. From an outsider's perspective and from an alum perspective, I have the sense you really changed Harvard Law School in many ways. I know you reduced the size of the first year class in terms of the size of the sections. You did much to build community within the school. Um, what do you regard as your most important accomplishments from the time of being a law school dean? Um, you know, I guess that I made the school more student-focused in a variety of ways. Um, you know, Harvard has always been a great institution, and um, and it has had a great faculty who have done um, immensely important academic work. But in terms of its focus on the student, I think it's it's gone up and down over the years. And when I came in, I thought that there was a real need um, to make sure that the the school was oriented towards the students, you know, you know, law school is there really to educate all these people. And uh, so I tried in a variety of ways to do that. And, and, and part of it was little stuff. Uh, uh, you know, I think I'm known at Harvard Law School before anything else for, you know, she's the dean that gave us free coffee. I, I don't, It's I, a good I, thing to be known for. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but I, 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 uh, um, I, I think that the, the, but it all kind. I sort of re. The the campus got much bigger when I was there. Um, the faculty got a lot larger uh, in order to serve students better, and we took seriously faculty engagement with students and faculty teaching. Um, so I I guess that's what 
that, that's, and I, I don't think it's at all gone backwards. You know, I, I've been, I've been extremely lucky because my two successors, it's a wonderful thing when you leave an institution that you care about a lot and you see people take over the institution and kind of go in the same direction and do this, the things that you really care about. And maybe because they're newer, you know, they come in with a new batch of ideas, and so they could do things that you couldn't do in your umpteenth year. And so that's, the, that's what I feel has happened there, and it makes me very happy to see. Well, in 2009, President Obama names you the Solicitor General of the United States, and as Chancellor Chris said, that's the lead lawyer in the Justice Department representing the United States government before the Supreme Court. Um, as I understand, your first oral argument was in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. Yeah. <clears throat> and as I understand, that was your first argument in any court. Well, not quite in any court, but oh. almost. Oh. Uh, it was uh, my first argument as Solicitor General. It was my first Supreme Court argument okay. ever. It was my first appellate court argument ever. I had done um, a, a decent amount of arguing in uh, district courts, but it was, it was a really new thing for me. I mean, new enough that when the job was offered to me, I really had to think about taking it. And this is one of these kind of crazy things about um, uh, I, when uh, President Obama got into office, I received a phone call, and, and it was to do a different kind of job. And, uh, and they vetted me for that, and then in the end, they decided that they needed to put somebody else in that position. And they turned around and they said to me, yes, but what we really want you to do is to be Solicitor General. And I said, I think you have the wrong person. Uh, because, you know, I, I don't have these um, appellate law experiences. And they said, no, we're confident you can do this. And I said, I have to think about it. And um, I thought about it for a couple of days. And I guess I sort of said, well, I guess if they're confident in me. <laughs> you know, why should I be the stumbling block, right? Uh, and um, uh, so I got there, and I was very nervous, obviously. Uh, the other parts of the job, and there are a lot of other parts of the Solicitor General's job other than being at the podium before the Supreme Court, but being at the podium is an important aspect of it, and, and that was the part that really made me nervous. I, had, I was extremely lucky. The Solicitor General's office is full of top-notch lawyers who are also super generous people, and who didn't think it was unusual uh, uh, to have somebody like me. They had seen SGs like me before. And they kind of had a, uh, you know, they, 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 uh, they, they had figured out how to train people like me. Uh, or I think that they thought that they could. And, um, uh, but my first argument was Citizens United, which was a scary one to do first, because you felt as though the whole world was looking at you. And the one thing that I did kind of think, because of the circumstances of that argument, was a re-argument when the court had ordered the um, parties to rebrief and re-argue uh, a single question, which was whether to overrule two of the court's prior cases. And when an order like that goes out, you kind of know that they've decided to overrule those two cases. So I never really felt as though the case hung on my performance. I didn't... Uh, I, uh, uh, but um, but it was it was scary. My heart was beating fast, and uh, I think uh, I owe a lot to Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia has a kind of argumentative um, uh, questioning style, but he also has a style which lets you answer. And um, and and in some ways, it's a very good style to bring somebody to bring a lawyer into the argument. So I, I walked up to the podium, and I got about a sentence and a half out, no more than that. And I, I had thought that that sentence and a half was pretty anodyne stuff. And uh, Justice Scalia leaned over the bench, and he said, wait, 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 <laughs> four times. And then, uh, and, and then he proceeded to tell me that everything I had just said was wrong. <laughs> And, uh, and I think it was actually a great thing to do. And I think he might have sort of known that. Justice Scalia and I knew each other uh, already. And, you know, I think I was up there and I was looking a little bit nervous. And he just got me into the thing. It's like when somebody challenges you like that, you just got to go back at them, right? And, uh, and so I tried to. And I don't know. But then we had this great conversation because he was. The kinds of questions that he asked were very direct, were very blunt, were very hard. But 
he would give you a chance to answer them, and he would understand that you know wasn't it, it wasn't a performance on his part. It was he was going to ask ask the questions, but he wanted people who could answer them. Get my first Supreme Court argument. I got four words out before Justice Scalia interrupted me, so you at least got a sentence and a half. After a year, Justice Stevens announces he's going to retire, and you're considered for the Supreme Court. What was the process of interviewing for that, both with the president and after being nominated with senators? Yeah. So uh, with the president, I have to say it, it felt a little bit old hat because um, the prior year, Justice Souter had resigned. And, uh, and I was asked at that point in time, even though I had just started as Solicitor General, but I was asked to put all my papers together and get them over to the White House Counsel's office. And then there were four of us who were interviewed by the president. And it was a pretty serious interview. Uh, you know, as you know, the president is a lawyer and he taught constitutional law. And, and you he, knew him at University of Chicago. I knew him a little bit, um, but, uh, but a little bit was good. And uh, yeah, he hadn't start, started to teach when I left, but, um, but, but the University of Chicago very much wanted him to teach there, and so there were a number of recruiting dinners and things like that that I participated in. So that's the way I knew him, but not as a colleague. But um, uh, he gave me a fantastic interview. I mean, it was a very substantive interview and uh, just all, you know, things that I thought about law, things that I thought about the court. Um, uh, but I did not get the job that time. So the president called me up and uh, in the end and said, you know, it's uh, not your time, and I've decided to go with Justice Sotomayor. And um, uh, he was very gracious and lovely. Um, but so the next year, I'm, I, I think he actually sort of said something like, you know, um, you know I think I might have more of these. Um, <laughs> so th the next year, I guess I, I a little bit sort of knew that I would be on a short list because I had been... I have to say, uh, and then he, he interviewed me again. He interviewed me again, but I have to say that uh, it was a bad day to interview. So it, do you remember the, um, the BP oil spill disaster? Yeah, so that happened literally about an hour before I walked into the White House to interview with the president. And, and um, first it didn't really look like he was going to interview, at all, interview me at all, but then he decided to, and... But it was pretty short, you know. He sort of said, I know you, Elena, and we did this last year, and basically i got to think about this oil crisis, this oil spill. Um, uh, but then, uh, yeah, so then he called me again, and the second conversation was definitely better than the first conversation. And, uh, yeah. And obviously any seat on the Supreme Court is special, but in terms of this one, this is the seat that Louis Brandeis held from... 1916 to 1939. William Douglas held from 1939 to 1975. John Paul Stevens held from 1975 till you took the seat in 2010. If nothing else, this season hopefully provides you a great deal of longevity. Yeah, so that's the way, uh, knock wood, that uh, I think of it. Um, I mean, it's an amazing thing, really, that only two people are between me and Louis Brandeis, who has always been a judicial hero of mine. And then... Uh, you know, more personal, more you know, closer is um, uh, Justice Stevens. Was uh, that was it was extraordinary filling uh, his seat. Can't ever fill his shoes. This is a man who served on the court for thirty-five years. Who was really one of the legal titans. Um, brilliant, uh, independent-minded, enormous amounts of integrity. Also, enormous amounts of kindness. Um, so, uh, so it, 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 it felt daunting to, to fill that seat, but it also sort of gave me something to aspire to. I want to turn to some students' questions, but I want to ask two questions before I do that. One is about dealing with people with whom you disagree. There's obviously very heated disagreements on the court. I mentioned earlier your beautiful writing. I think your dissent in Rucho versus Common Cause at the end of last term, it was a partisan gerrymandering case where the court said, the federal judiciary can't hear challenges of partisan training. And Justice Kagan wrote one of the best dissenting opinions I've ever seen in any case. Certainly commend our law students to read it if you haven't done so. But how do you then, having written a dissent like that, deal with the justices on the other side? 
how do you... I thought you were going to say, how do they deal with me? Uh, um, no, but I'll I rephrase think, my question. How do you deal with each other? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, uh, Justice Scalia had a saying, which was, like, if, if you take it personally, you're in the wrong line of work. And I think that's true. Although I, I do think one should never be personal in one's criticisms. I hope my Rucho dissent was not that. I hope it was like substantive and on the merits, not at all personal and not at all questioning the good faith of the majority, uh, which I believe the majority acted in good faith. Um, but I think that this is, uh, you know, it's a good example because how does he deal with me? How do I deal with him? I mean, I admire the Chief Justice enormously. If you, you know, if we had more time, I would give you, like all the Chief Justices, many virtues. Um, and so, uh, you know, I thought he got it wrong in that opinion, and I said why. Um, but that doesn't make me admire him any less. And it also doesn't make me like him any less. You know, I guess I find it a little bit perplexing, this idea that you can't like a person whom you disagree with strenuously. Um, uh, even on important matters. That, you know, I, I don't like everybody who I agree with, and I don't dislike everybody who I disagree with. Is that, did I say that right? You, uh, um, so there are some you know, great friendships on the court that, um, uh, be, be, between people who uh, you know, often disagree about legal matters. Um, you know, I think maybe the best known is Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. Um, uh, I was extremely close to Justice Scalia. I've just spent the last few days uh, writing a foreword to a book of his opinions, um, which, you know, I, I, I sort of made myself cry doing it, remembering him. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I like all my current colleagues um, uh, and feel close to many of them. And, and uh, you know, I think, honestly, that's what makes the world go round. Uh, you know, I, I guess I, I, I just don't understand why it is that agreement or disagreement uh, is more to people than what they think about issues. Uh, people can be warm and kind and generous and caring and, um, and all the uh, good things that you want a person to be, even if they don't agree with you. And, and, and speaking from a strictly pragmatic point of view, I mean, you know, if you ever want to do anything, you're probably going to have to get along with people whom you don't see eye to eye with on everything. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, whether it's on the court or anyplace else, the ability to, to say, I'm not going to let this stand in the way of a good relationship, and also the ability to, to get to know somebody well enough so that you can step into that person's shoes and see the world a little bit from uh, their vantage point is... is uh, again, speaking only pragmatically, is very helpful if you're trying to figure out how to convince them or how to um, uh, get them to see the world more your way. One last question, and I'll turn it to the students for a few questions. If you were to pick one thing that none of us know about the Supreme Court that you've learned being inside, what would it be? What would most surprise us about the internal operation of the court that you discovered only by being there? Yeah, well, I, I guess I think, I, I don't think uh, there's all that, that much that might surprise people who are court observers, but I think that the one thing is like what happens behind closed doors in that conference room. Uh, I think certainly for me, I had been there as a clerk and I had uh, worked as solicitor general. I felt as though I, I, I knew a fair bit about the court. Um, uh, honestly, the court is a, conservative with a small c institution in the sense that its rules and practices and procedures stay the same over time. So when I came into the, the, the court as a justice, I mean, it seemed as though the way the court operated was not so very different from the court I had known. It was, uh, I think it was uh, about uh, 23 years earlier. Um, but the one thing you don't know is like what happens behind those conference uh, doors because no clerk can go in there, no other employee of the court can go in there. So I think that that's what I was curious about, and uh, and it's good. It's good. Uh, Do you have heated discussions? Yeah, I think if you were a fly on the wall, you would think that the discussions are pretty high level. Um, 
uh, which is not to say that we get into every minute detail in conference. We don't. We leave a lot of the detail work until somebody circulates an opinion, and then people can really go over and say, this sentence is wrong, and that paragraph is, uh, needs to be changed, and so forth. So the, the, the conversations at confer- conference are at a, a certain level of generality, but they're, they're pretty smart. They're, you know, they, you know, I mean, they are good conversations with, you know this from argument. When you go see an argument, you've been on the opposite side. You know that this court is an extremely well-prepared court, that the justices have read the briefs, that the justices know the case. And I think our conversation and conference reflects that. It's substantive. It's, um, it's, 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 it's a conversation that only people who have really done the reading and done the thinking could have. And uh, again, I think if you were a fly on the wall, you would be pretty proud of the institution. Especially if they voted for my side more often. Yeah, there there (laughs) you go. But we won't talk about that. Um, Some questions from the students. Is the mic on? I can't see very much here, but I know Kyle Valenti has the microphone, and students have some questions. Um, Can you hear from the mic, or...? Uh, is the mic working? Should I just try and project as much as I can? Try to use the microphone. Hello? It's very hard to hear without it. Okay. Oh, there you go. Uh, Justice Kagan, thank you so much for being here. My name is Mosin. I'm a 2L. I wanted to ask, as someone who clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall, whose central strategy as a lawyer during the civil rights movement was to turn to the court to advance justice and civil rights, do you believe given the current composition of the court, that those traditional impact litigation strategies still have value? And what do you recommend to impact litigation advocates for whom the court no longer feels like an avenue to advance justice? Yeah, so I'm going to d- disappoint you on this and tell you it's not for me to say. Uh, I would, I, I, I would uh, not give strategy to any kinds of lawyers about... Uh, um, whether to appear before the court, how to appear before the court. Um, those lawyers don't need strategy from me, and it would seem to me uh, sort of inappropriate in terms of my own role. And that's very important to me. I was talking about this with some of the students this morning, is I think that when you become a Supreme Court justice, you know, maybe some people think, well, you've risen to this highest point of the legal profession, and now you get to opine on everything, and now you get to just try to, um, in every way possible, make the world the world that you would like to see. And it's not true, or it's at least not my own conception of the role, is that um, uh, you know the, the, the legal system has many different institutions and many different people playing uh, many different parts in it, and I think you have to understand... Uh, what it's given to you to do, and also what it's not given to you to do. And the latter is just as important in terms of doing your job well as the former. So understanding your constraints and understanding the limits of your role and understanding that um, uh, 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 and understanding that, you know, for example, that I shouldn't be giving strategy to lawyers of any kind is, I think, a pretty important part of my, uh, of my position. Kyle, do you have a second question? Hi, thank you so much for coming today. My name is Sophia. I'm a 1L. Um, my question is, how do you think the Supreme Court is positioned, or the law in general, to handle the rapidly changing pace of technology? We have a system in which it takes many years or even decades to address an issue, and more and more new technologies are raising new questions that not only could not have been foreseen, but that might be developing far too fast. As someone who has witnessed this dramatic change in your lifetime, what do you see as your role specifically and as the Supreme Court's role generally in shaping this modern context? So I'm not sure I caught every... Uh, word of that question, but tell me if I'm wrong, that it's basically about how technology is changing so fast and how the court reacts to that. Is that? Yes. Um, and I think that this is one of the great challenges for the court, actually, uh, uh, because we live in a time where technology is um, changing and changing our lives faster than we could ever have imagined even a short time ago. And, um, and you, you know, if you wanted to 
to, to pick nine people who really understand this technology. <laughs> I mean, I'll just speak for myself and say, you wouldn't put me on that court. <laughs> and, uh, but you have to understand it to decide cases appropriately. And technology, I mean, uh, changing technology, it can, it can create problems about fir- the First Amendment. It can create legal issues about the Fourth Amendment. Uh, 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 it can create many, many different kinds of non-constitutional issues. Um, and you have to understand it in order to decide those cases, right? So, so I think you have to be committed as a judge, and um, I hope we all are, uh, to knowing what you don't know and to learning. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know what you don't know, and then you figure out, you develop strategies for how you can get to know it and how you can get to know it in a way that makes your decisions not just sort of like adequate, oh, I got through that, but smart about, <clears throat> about technology and, um, and the way it's changing our world. And uh, so I think that that's our challenge. And, um, you know, we're, 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 um, we're lucky in having um, each of us has a set of clerks. They're younger people. They often understand more about techno- technological issues than we do. We're lucky in being served by an extremely good Supreme Court bar and also by getting a lot of amicus briefs and sometimes amicus briefs more so than parties briefs actually do introduce you to the world of uh, technological change. Uh, just, you know, uh, the, um, the opinion, the, the dissent that I wrote in the gerrymandering case, <clears throat> excuse me, is a good example of this because one of the things that has changed that is that uh, current gerrymanders are very different from old-time gerrymanders because of the kinds of technology that are used to do them and how much more certainty uh, that technology gives the map drawers in terms of making districts that are impervious to change, even if the voters want to go in a different direction, or at least so I thought. And, uh, and, and some of the briefs that, uh, that I used to, to learn about that and then to try to convey it, in my opinion, were briefs um, from people who really understood the technology, you know, from mathematicians and uh, uh, non-lawyer types um, uh, that said, you know, we, we, we're not sure we, uh, you, you know, you, you've got to do the law, but here's what you have to understand about the technology of this map drawing to allow you to make your legal decision. This is another question from a student. Hi, my name is Ben Pollock, and I'm a third-year student at Berkeley. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for your work on the court. Um, my question is, at a time when the court appears, at least from the outside, to be increasingly politicized and votes largely fall along partisan lines, how can we maintain faith in the court's fair and impartial administration of justice? That, in Chief Justice Marshall's words, we still have a government of laws and not of men. As someone who's about to enter a career in the law, I desperately want to believe in the integrity of the court, but it's becoming increasingly difficult for me. Can you help me? Uh, Well, I think I can help. Uh, You know, I'm here to tell you uh, that I I don't think that, uh, you know, I think that your doubts seem a little bit overblown to me. Um, uh, I think that, and uh, I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way at all. I mean, I understand the questions that people have about this. Um, I, let me point out a few things. Um, uh, the, I think the kinds of cases in which you're talking where the court seems very politicized uh, are a, a small minority of our docket. Maybe if we take 18 cases, maybe 10, maybe 15, something like that, are cases that are 5-4. I don't want to dismiss that. I mean, I don't want to say, oh, so you don't have any problems, because uh, it might be that those 10 or 15 cases are um, among the more important ones and certainly the most high-profile ones. 
and it never feels good to lose those. I mean, it didn't feel good to uh, lose the gerrymandering case, and it didn't feel good to lose it by a 5-4 vote. Um, but uh, I do think that if you look at the court's work, like let's say last term, uh, there were not very many of those cases. And uh, what you'll find much more of are people who did unexpected things. And, uh, and again, even in this small category of cases, which are the really highly contested ones, people who did unexpected things and cases that came out in unexpected ways and, um, and, and um, sort of uh, odd bedfellows, if you will, and I think you would have a hard time looking uh, at last term and telling the story uh, that you just told about about the court, as opposed to a story which said um, something like, look, yes, um, uh, there are different ways of looking at law on the court. And, and certainly we have um, strong disagreements about things that matter. And uh, sometimes you see us express those disagreements, and we should, because these things matter. Um, but, but these are all people who are um, trying their hardest to do a job and uh, who should be given the benefit of the doubt that they're all operating in complete good faith and, um, and who more often then you might think uh, do things that are are, are are you know are not expected of them um, uh, and you know sometimes people praise them for that and sometimes people castigate them for that um, uh, and and that's because there's a difference between being a judge and being a political person or being a person with strong political opinions um, and I think we're all quite aware that we are judges. Now, are there going to be times where all kinds of different folks are disappointed? Yes, there are. Are there going to be times when I am? I think, I think so. I, I, I was disappointed in that gerrymandering case. But, um, uh, and, and, and just the fact that we live in a polarized world increase the responsibility of the court to think about these questions and to behave in a non-polarized fashion, I think it does. I mean, I think we have to understand the world we're living in and try to the extent we can to find common ground, try to the extent we can to reach consensus, try to the extent we can to see how the world looks from another point of view. And um, and so the fact that this is a difficult time, I th I think, uh, makes it incumbent on us to do all those things. And I think we should assume that responsibility. I don't think it's illegitimate at all. I actually think it's the responsible thing for a court to do in these times is to remember that it has uh, it has to look like a court in order to maintain. Uh, people's sense of legitimacy in the institution, which is a critical, critical thing. Um, uh, it's the thing that really um, is essential to upholding the rule of law in this country. So, so I take your question very seriously, um, uh, and I think that the court should take your question seriously, as well as a question you know, from somebody who might have the exact opposite views you have uh, uh, and who, you know, complains about the census case last year or something. Um, but, uh, but I think, um, don't despair. That seems a very good place to stop. I know there are other students with questions. I am, but please join me in thanking Justice Kagan.